what a great um, time together and eating. And so now we can eat spiritually as we open, open God's word together. And I'm excited about tonight. Um, we're closing out the book of James. And I am just excited to share the text tonight. But I'm also excited because one of the things I wanted to do tonight was do like a recap. Uh, kind of like a, a, a overview, drive-by quickly recap of the book of James and I think it would be very helpful for us to be reminded maybe of these past 10 weeks. And as I was doing this and preparing for this, I was smiling doing it, thinking like, holy cow, like there is so much in the book of James. And uh, again, I've encouraged you over the course of the 10 weeks, you've heard me say multiple times to be reading through the book of James yourselves. And I would encourage you, even as we finish the study tonight, read through it again and, and maybe even get some Bible study tools, a Bible study with another guy, maybe get, um, you know, a study Bible and read, you know, some of the, the notes in that as you work through the book of James, because it is so practical. It's known as the wisdom literature of the New Testament. Uh, that's what people characterize the book of James as. And I started off when we gave the first overview, kind of the background setting and all that, and saying uh, 50 different exhortations have been counted in the book of James. 50, um, which is a lot. I mean, that's enough if you were to take one per day to get you through almost two months um, of just exhortations in James, practical things that we can implement and put into practice in our lives. So I want to go through some highlights from James as we get started. Um, this isn't going to be in your notes. This is just free of charge. Uh, no, Nothing on the notes there. This is not part of the message today, but highlights from James chapter 1. If you have your Bible, just jump into it with me, starting in chapter 1, and look at some of these highlights with me. James chapter 1, uh, verses 2 to 5. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. I started that first message off asking, have you ever faced trials before? Put your hands up. And every hand should have went up, right? And they still go up tonight, right? Because we've all faced trials of various kinds, and James gives instruction. And what a, what a crazy thought for us to consider. His instruction is count it all joy when you face trials of all different kinds. And, and we kind of pointed out it's not if you face trials, but when you face trials. This was nothing new. I remember the recipients of the letter that James is writing. It's to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. These are Jews from all 12 tribes that are scattered because of the persecution that they were enduring, the hardship that they were enduring because of the gospel. So they were very familiar with trials. They probably most likely were going through them as James was delivering this great letter uh, for them to be able to encourage be encouraged by. Uh, James was familiar with trials. Um, and, and so, you know, tradition would have it, history would have it that James was martyred for his faith. Uh, tradition and history says that he was thrown off the Temple Mount, um, and that's how he was martyred for his faith in Christ. We don't know if that's accurate or true. That's what tradition and history says. Um, but he was sacrificing his very life for Christ and was willing to do that. And so that's an interesting just thing to, to chalk away in our minds. Verses 13 to 15, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted. Again, Stop there. He doesn't say if he's tempted. He says what? When he's tempted. And so even in the first two weeks, uh, when you face trials. How many face trials? We all put our hands up. How many have ever been tempted before? Right? Again, every hand up. Some of you are like, yep, right before I came tonight. Today, this week, tomorrow, temptation hits. 
And, and James says, when he is tempted, not if, but when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And just as a side note, and there's so many times we can do this with these texts in, in James, aren't you thankful for the God that we serve? That, that our God is good and gracious, and he doesn't tempt us with evil. Um, he doesn't entice us with evil. He doesn't try to get us to fall. I'm so thankful for that. Um, you know, have you ever been in a relationship with someone that tries to get you to fall or tries to get you to falter? I joke with my wife sometimes if I ever talk about being on a diet and I'm trying to eat good things. The last time I was trying to eat good, my wife knows I love chocolate almond ice cream. That's my favorite kind of ice cream, chocolate almond. And so I was trying like to eat really good and she's sitting on the couch at night and she was eating chocolate. She's like, I bought chocolate almond ice cream. And I'm like, What? And she was like, it's so good. And I'm like, why are you doing this to me? (laughs) I'm like, what are you doing? It's like the tempter tempting me to eat ice cream, right? And, uh, And I held strong at that point in time. I didn't the next day. But it was one of those things that we know what it's like when we get tempted. But how good is it that James points out here, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Because our God, unlike our enemy, does not tempt us with evil. Again, it's the character of God that that James is revealing here, and it's so encouraging. He says, but, verse 14, each person is tempted. Now listen, this isn't where we're camping out tonight, but I'm revisiting this because I think it's so good. Have you ever thought, why am I tempted? Why is temptation so strong in my life? Why do I continually give in to temptation? Why does the temptation seem to be so prevalent for me as opposed to other people? individuals or why does temptation seem to be around every door look at what he says that each person is tempted when he is lord and enticed by what his own desire his own desire and guys i think that one of the challenges we made it that week was what are we feeding our minds and feeding into our hearts which shows a feeding of our desires is it things above or things of this earth? He says, And desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The origin of that temptation, you know, starts with our own desire. And so, again, it really leaves no way for us to blame someone else for our sin. You know, maybe you've used the line, you've heard the line, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. If you're, if you're a follower of Christ... You cannot accurately say that. I cannot accurately say that. Well, Satan made me. No, he did not. Um, This passage makes it very clear. We are drawn away by our own lusts and enticed. Does he want us to fall? Absolutely. Is he a tempter? Absolutely. Unlike God, he is. But the starting point of this is our own desires and enticement and lust and then ultimately sin. Again, not if you're tempted, but when you're tempted. Verses 22 to 25, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Again, what a practical challenge. Because I think this is something that if we're honest, all of us, including myself, we, we struggle with from time to time. We hear and know what we are to do, but we don't do it, right? We hear the word of God and we can give 
you know, praise to the word of God. We can leave church on Sunday after a message and say, man, fantastic message, Butch, and you did a great job expounding the word, and I was challenged by that, and, and those are things that I really need to implement in my life, and then Monday comes and be like, nah, never mind, right? Our, our thought process so often is so quickly we forget that we not only need to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, putting it into practice in our lives. Such practical illustration he gives about looking at our, our faces in a mirror, you know, the reason we look in a mirror is because we want to see if something needs to be addressed, if something needs to be corrected, um, you know, if something's in your teeth, if something's in your nose, if something's on your face. We look to see if something needs to be corrected. And, and James gives the illustration. He says, can you imagine looking in a mirror and, and seeing clearly what needs to happen, what needs to be corrected, walking away from it, doing nothing, and then just forgetting that you even saw what you saw? Uh, I was in Mexico doing some training for pastors down there. That's why I haven't been here the last two weeks. And we did a young adults um, event. And we had over 200 uh, young adults come to this event. It was just a great time together. And I was sharing this passage with them and James about looking into the perfect law that gives freedom. And I gave the illustration of the mirror that James gives. I said, hey, can you imagine if you were coming tonight and these were mostly single young adults that were gathering, guys and girls. And I'm like, and you knew someone was going to be there, that you that you wanted to be there. and You wanted to make sure you talked to them. And before you went to talk to them, before you came, you made sure everything was in place. You look in the mirror and you notice you have some Something right in the middle of your teeth. It's just, there it is. You're not going to miss it. And so you look and you're like, oh man, that looks terrible. I need to get that out of there. And you walk away, do not take it out and forget that you even saw it there. And then you show up and you see the person and the whole time they're talking to you, you're like, why are they staring directly at my teeth? Because of the green, you know, salad that's stuck right there. And you go and you look again and there it is. And you're like, oh, that's why they were doing that. And you laugh and then you walk away and do nothing about it. We would think that would be foolish, right? Ridiculous. Why even look then? And that's what James is saying here. Why even look? Why even listen? Why even observe the scriptures if you're not going to do them? Right? And this is something that's going to be a theme he's going to talk about later on, about being a doer of the word that we're going to look at. But again, practical insight. In chapter 2, in chapter 2, we have um, verse 1. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Don't we struggle with this? I mean, if we're honest, so many of these things, it's like, yep, yep, yep. Those are struggles that are prevalent in our society, in our culture, struggles that are prevalent probably in our own lives. The idea of partiality and showing favoritism to some and a lack of favoritism to others, depending upon who they are, what they own, how successful they are, uh, how much pull or influence that they have. And James addresses that even for the early church because they were dealing with it as well. Verses 14 to 17, faith without works is dead being alone. Faith without works is dead being alone. You have faith and I have works. I will show you my faith by my works. Again, this doesn't, we talked about this in some detail. This doesn't say that faith with works is what saves you. But if you have true saving faith, it will be demonstrated in the works that are being produced in your life. And so we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's the work of Christ. It's not based upon what we can do. We can bring nothing to God to earn his salvation and favor. But if we are truly believers in Jesus Christ and have true saving faith, that will be seen in our actions. Again, practical instruction that's here. Chapter 3, he talks about in verses 5 to 10, the tongue. The tongue is a world of iniquity, it says. Uh, the whole course is set on fire by it. And he talks about our words and speech, that no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. 
And I hope, guys, it was challenging when we look at that to say, wow, my words, what I say matters. Actions matter. And you've probably heard the saying before that, you know, actions speak louder than words, right? And many times that is so true, but also words matter. Words can hurt. You know, one of the things that we pointed out when we talked about the words thing is if you think about maybe some of the greatest hurts that have taken place in your life where someone has hurt you. And if I were to say, hey, get it in your mind, when did you feel hurt by someone? Most of the time it's at something someone said that you remember and not necessarily an action that you're thinking of. Words can hurt. We remember the things that people say to us. And, and James is addressing this and saying, listen, out of the same mouth are coming blessing and cursing. These things should not be so. And so, again, practical insight for us in chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? And he goes on to explain heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. And he talks about where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, earthly wisdom. There's disorder in every evil practice, but wisdom, verse 17, from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And he ends that chapter by saying, and a fruit or a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And talked about, again, what is our life producing? Is it producing righteousness, a harvest of righteousness, or the things that this world offers and this world produces? And so there's a distinct difference between heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. I, go, I know we're going through this rather quickly here, but we don't have time to get into detail on all these things because we've covered them already. But chapter 4, verses 4 to 8, in revisiting this, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And, and you can't serve two masters. Jesus talked about this before. He talked about how the world hates him. It will also hate you as, as followers of Christ, as servants of Christ, and friendship with the world is enemy with God. And in the context here, Paul's talking about worldliness, and he's also talking about um, you know, doing the things that the world does. And so if we are more concerned with pleasing the world in our actions and our words and the things that we're doing rather than pleasing God, our priorities are in the wrong spot. If we have a greater concern for looking good in the eyes of the world rather than doing what is pleasing in the eyes of God, we have the wrong priority in mind. And again, this is very practical because I think, again, this is like one of those areas that's like ding, 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 that's something as men we can struggle with. We can struggle with our own sinful pride, can't we? We can struggle with how people view us and what they think of us rather than what does God say and what does God think. So often if you ask people, why do you not share the gospel of Jesus Christ? One of the most prominent reasons is people feel embarrassed. They feel embarrassed to be able to, in particular men, to talk to another man about the fact that they go to church or that they depend on God because sometimes it's seen as a weakness. You've heard people say, oh, Jesus is your crutch. Jesus is your crutch. You use God as a crutch. He's not just the crutch, right? Like He's like who I need to like carry me completely. It's not that I'm leaning on him. It's I'm dependent on him. But we're embarrassed sometimes to talk about that. And he talks about you cannot be a friend of the world and at the same time truly be serving and drawing near to God. And he says this, he says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, he'll flee from you, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It's an incredible promise that, that James talks about here. And again, maybe some people, you've heard this before, maybe this has been you. You're like, man, I feel like the devil's attacking me on all sides. I would encourage you, if you're feeling like that's happened, draw near to God, resist the devil. He says, and he will flee from you. 
Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Again, practical, just practical insight that James is giving. And then verse 17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is one of those areas where I feel like if you ever run into anybody who's like, yeah, you know what, since coming to know Christ, I just don't sin anymore. One, they're lying, right? That's a sin. They're lying. But if you show them this verse, to him that knows to do good and does it not, it is sin. Have you ever felt impressed by God to do something that you knew was honoring to him or you knew he wanted to do and you had a reason not to do it and you didn't do it? This says, to him that knows to do good and does it not, it is sin. We can get into all kinds of conversations about that. But again, James is emphasizing here the necessity of the believer to seek to do good. And he's had that theme consistently. And here's what's amazing about all of these things that we're talking about. He's talking again to believers who are scattered abroad, persecuted for their faith. And these are the encouragements he's given to them. And then chapter 5, last week, verses 7 8, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. This is a great encouragement and challenge. I mean, how many of us, I, I, I would think all of us, are, we cannot wait for the return of the Lord. I mean, it, I, I, I had a conversation with one of my daughters a couple weeks ago, and we were at breakfast, and I was just trying to encourage her and talk with her, and and as we were talking, and she brought up the things that were going on in Israel and the things that were going on in the wars, and, and I said to her, I said, well, honey, I said, the encouraging thing we know in all this is that Jesus could come back at any time. And she, like, her eyes lit up, and she smiled, and she's like, yeah. And she's like, you really think that he could come back today? I'm like, he could come back today. I mean, he could come back tomorrow. He can come back before James ends tonight. The Lord could return. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be amazing? That would just be absolutely amazing. And so living in view of that and in light of that should cause us to be patient and to endure because we know in a moment he can return. And it was interesting because someone told me last week, a parent, a dad told me, he's like, hey, my daughter got a text from your daughter in a group chat with a bunch of other kids. And your daughter texted out, hey, we all need to make sure we're telling people about Jesus now because he could come back today or tomorrow and he can come back at any time. And so we have a short time. And I was just thrilled to hear that. I'm like, man, praise the Lord. But it was convicting because <laughs> I was like, I just told her that. And my response walking away from breakfast that day wasn't like, yeah, Lord, I really got to go share today with someone. That was her response. And I'm like, right, it's conviction, right? But this goes back to this idea of to him that knows to do good and does not do sin. Guys, we know and believe that the Lord's coming back. He's coming back, and we have an amazing message to share with people, and yet we are so often silent. Again, this is very practical, and, and James is encouraging the believers who are suffering with this. And so as I think about this, it made me think of when I was in college, and I would have to register for classes for the following semester. And when I would have to register for a class for the following semester, I would read the overview of the class, I would read about the instructor of the class, and I'd also try to talk to some of the guys that I knew that had already taken the class to get their feedback, right? And so, and I would try to look if I could at the syllabus and what the expectations were going to be. And so if you're a believer in Christ and I say, hey, here's the book of James for you. The, the teacher, instructor, if you will, is the half-brother of Jesus who went from not believing in Jesus to being completely transformed by Jesus, being willing to die for Jesus and was a major leader in the early church. I think that would be an instructor that we would be like, okay, I'm ready to hear, right? And by the way, everything he wrote is under the inspiration of God. It's breathed out by God, right? So that, that would be sufficient for us to say, I need to take that class. But in addition to that, 
You could talk to the people or if you were trying to track down the people that this was written for to benefit them, for their growth in the Lord, for their encouragement in the Lord. It's written to believers who were being persecuted for their faith, who were scattered abroad, and who were still maintaining and living rightly before the Lord. That's who would be someone that would say, hey, take the class. Seems like a good audience, right, to be able to listen to and to be able to take their word for it, that this is going to be beneficial. Um, In addition to that, here's what he's going to cover for you as a believer. Trials, temptations, our actions, implementing God's word into our lives, not showing partiality, treating people equally, faith and works in action, our words and speech, our tongues, heavenly wisdom versus earthly wisdom, worldliness versus godliness, doing good, patience in the midst of suffering, and focusing on the return of the Lord and prayer. If I listed all that, how many would be like, yeah, I probably need to take that class, right? And so as we started off, I want to bookend it as we close by saying, this is an incredible letter. The the letter of James, the book of James is an incredible, incredible book that we should want to study, we should want to look at, and we should want to receive into our lives. It's a hugely beneficial book, and we've tried to bring that out uh, each step of the way. And so I hope you've been encouraged. But it's going to bring us all the way now to the end of James, James chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 13 to 20 as we wrap things up tonight. And what I've done tonight is just have entitled this Concluding Thoughts from James. So let's look at James chapter 5, 13 to 20. It's also on your handouts. If you don't have a copy of God's word on you, it will be on your handouts. It's not going to be on the screen, uh, but you can flip over that handout and it's going to be on there for you. Verses 13 to 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. A lot packed in here in these final eight, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, final eight verses that James gives us in verses 13 to 20. A lot packed in here. And so I've just entitled this Concluding Thoughts from James. And I just very simply took, you know, a statement that James makes and then the action that he gives. And so remember who it is, again, that he's talking to, believers that are suffering, believers that are enduring persecution, believers that are under extreme trials in their life. They've been scattered abroad, taken out of their homes, taken out of the land that they've been familiar with. They're scattered abroad because of their stance for Christ in the gospel. And so number one concluding thought from James, if you're suffering, pray. If you're suffering, pray. I want you to think about that for a moment. Um, When we endure suffering or persecution as a believer in Christ, um, when suffering comes into our lives, trials come into our lives, this is... I believe in some ways James recapping what he started the letter with in chapter 1. He says, Count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds, knowing the trying of your faith, right, develops perseverance. And what is James' acknowledgement to the believer who's suffering in the midst of trials in chapter 1? What does he tell him to do? If you lack wisdom, ask of God, and he will give it to you. And so I believe he's recapping again what he, what he initially started in chapter 1. Is anyone among you suffering? And the answer would be yes. 
And he would know that the answer to that is yes. And he says, pray. What's interesting is that James doesn't say flee, right? That's not what he says. Is any one of you suffering? Flee. Is any one of you suffering? Then stay quiet. Is any one of you suffering? Just hide away for a while. He says, pray. And you see this in other parts of the world. Um, I've shared before in here that the church planters in China that we train, all of them severely persecuted for their faith. Uh, the one session that we had where the one trip, um, what we were told was every guy in that room had been in prison at least one time because of their preaching of the gospel when they were in China. And their prayer request to us, we asked all of them that we met with individually, how can we pray for you? And it was as though someone gave them a line to read because everybody's prayer request was identical. They said, pray, pray that we would continue to be bold as we share the gospel. Not a single guy prayed for deliverance for him or his family. Not a single guy asked us to pray for his safety and protection or the protection and safety of his family. He said, pray, they all said it, pray that God would continue to give us boldness and pray that God would raise up more leaders. I mean, it was like someone gave him a script. I couldn't believe it. And every time I was like, listen, thing like, come on, tell me to pray for your family. Tell me to pray for safety. Tell me to, like I'm thinking, because I'm greatly convicted hearing this because what is our reaction so often when we are suffering or when we're enduring trials? God, please deliver me from the trial. And he says, is anybody suffering? Pray. And is it okay to pray for deliverance? Sure it is. I mean, the Bible talks about letting our requests be made known to God. But in the midst of that deliverance, our overarching desire is, God, my, not my will, but your will be done, right? And this is interesting because Jesus did this when he was in the garden. If you remember the story, when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, before he's going to be betrayed by Judas, just moments before that, he's praying in the garden. And if you get a chance to revisit that, look it up. It's in the Gospels, multiple Gospel accounts where Jesus is in the garden. And in Luke's Gospel in particular, Luke mentions the fact that Jesus was sweating great drops of blood which is a medical, you know, proven medical condition where you're under duress, that this could physically happen to you. But here's something I found very interesting, is that if you read the passages that talk about this, and I believe it's Luke, and I don't want to say for sure it's Luke, I believe it is though, but one of the authors, either Luke or Mark, I believe, they make a point to say that when Jesus was going to go off to pray, he went to Peter, James, and John who were there, and he said, watch and pray lest you enter temptation. You remember that? Watch and pray lest you enter temptation because they were asleep. And so he comes back to them and they're sleeping. He's like, wake up, watch and pray lest you enter temptation. And one of the gospel writers makes a point to include this statement. It says this. It says, after he told him this, he went about a stone's throw away and knelt down on his knees and prayed to the Father, asking that if it were possible, this cup might pass, but not my will, but your will be done. So as Jesus was facing the wrath of God that was coming, and he knew the wrath of God that he would endure on our behalf, on your behalf for sin, he prayed to his father and said, Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. And that's when he's sweating these great drops of blood. But what stuck out to me, because nothing is in Scripture on accident, is when the author makes the point to say he went about a stone's throw away. And a stone's throw is not far. That's a short distance and I, I thought, why in the world would they include that statement? And I can't say authoritatively why that statement's in there, but what I can tell you is what came to my mind was what Jesus was about to do as he's done every step of the way was model for his disciples as he asked them to watch and pray, lest they enter temptation, how he was going to handle the duress and strain of the wrath of God that would soon be on his shoulders. And you know what it was? Not my will, but your will be done. 
It would have been in sight and listening distance to those disciples that he said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And I looked at it and thought, what a model, right? What an example. And so when the passage says, is any one of you suffering? Let him pray. This is what Jesus modeled. He modeled this for his disciples. The son of God modeled this for his disciples. I thought that was just so neat to think about how Jesus would go to great lengths to model for his disciples, even in his humanity when he was suffering that he was going to the Father, but always with not my will, but your will be done. And so James is wrapping up this letter to believers who are suffering. And he says, are you suffering? Pray. Uh, Number two, if you're cheerful, praise. He says, anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Um, This is something that, again, the nation of Israel in their history had to be reminded about. Um, if you recall, when, the, when the, the nation of Israel was entering into the promised land, one of the challenges that was given to them is that when you enter the land and, and you're seeing success and your fields are producing and everything is good, that you not forget the Lord your God, but that you would give him the praise and the glory that is due to his name. Don't forget the Lord the one that brought you out of the land of Egypt, the one that guided you by a pillar of, of, of smoke during the cloud of smoke in the day and pillar of fire at night. Don't forget the Lord. And there was an encouragement to the nation of Israel to make sure in the midst of times that are good and they're cheerful and things are good that there's praise and glory being offered up to God. And, and again, James is telling these believers, listen, if you're cheerful, give glory, give praise, praise the Lord. If you're cheerful, give him praise. Sing praise. And you know how much of an effect that has on other people, right? You know what that does. Um, If you live with, if you have a a spouse at home, if you have children at home, if you've ever gone on vacation with your family, you know what I mean when I say that one person in a house or in a location can steer the direction of the attitude of everybody there. You know what I'm talking about. You know, if we we have a we get a beach house together with my family, my parents and my sisters, her family, um, our family, and we all stay together in this house and we split the cost, makes it real affordable. But if someone is not happy in the family, and and you can see it all over them, it affects multiple people in the family because everybody's wondering what's wrong and why are they upset, and and the demeanor just kind of goes down here. Or if you're sitting at dinner with someone and someone's mad about something and you know it and other people know it and they're just staring a hole through every person in that room, you know how that affects you and how it affects people, right? The atmosphere could be completely transformed. But we equally know how transforming it is when someone who is cheerful and joyful enters the equation. And everybody cheers up. You guys know Pastor Steve Bogren, I'm sure, who's our discipleship pastor. He spoke one. Steve is like that cheerful guy. That when Steve's around, everybody's happy. Because Steve comes in and it's like a ball of happiness that comes in to the room. Our middle school pastor Jacob is the same way. It is very difficult when Jacob's around not to be smiling and not to be encouraged. Um, you guys know Rick Colelli, who, who is here, and he does. He spoke before, I think he spoke two weeks ago. But Rick is one of our elders. He heads up our maintenance team. Rick's an encourager. He's going to encourage you. If you spend any time with Rick Colelli, you are going to walk away thinking, like, I'm really special. Like, that's what you're going to think once you meet with Rick. So we know what this does. And so I'm looking at this and thinking, okay, again, don't miss who James is writing to. He's writing to believers that because of the things that were happening in their lives and the suffering that was taking place, he had to remind them again and again and again throughout this letter not to grow weary, not to be discouraged, not to faint, not to be impatient. And now he's telling them if there's people who are suffering among you, let them pray. And if there are cheerful people among you, then they should be praising 
Because that has impact, guys. That has, that has impact. Have, has God ever done something in your life that you just couldn't contain and you're excited and you're overjoyed and you share it with people and people are like, that's fantastic. And everybody's like, all right. Like it, it brings joy. And, and the same is true when we keep it to ourselves and don't tell anybody about it. It, it, it can bring just a stagnancy. And can you imagine if we never had opportunity in the church to hear testimonies of people's lives who are being changed? We never did baptisms. We never heard people give testimony of how God has transformed their lives. We just show up. No one says anything. No one gives glory to God. No one cheers and gives praise to God. Uh, what a miserable way for the church to gather. And, and so here, what's remarkable to me is James is encouraging praise even in the midst of circumstances that most people would think, how could you possibly praise in the midst of what we're dealing with? And he says to give God praise. Um, we do that for our kids. If our kids do something well, we cheer them on, give them praise. What about the praise that should be offered to God? And he says, if you're cheerful, give praise. If you're sick, call for prayer. This is an interesting passage. If anyone's sick among you, call for the elders of the church. Let them pray, them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Um, we practice this as a church. I don't know how many of you know this. We've talked about this from the pulpit before. Um, on Sundays, we've talked about this. But we, we pray for you as a church family. We ask people to submit prayer requests. And we're going to talk about that in a minute when he says pray for one another. But the elders of our church, um, we do pray for individuals that are sick, that are suffering. We anoint them with oil. Uh, and we pray over them, and we lay hands on them to pray for them. We do this. Um, I wouldn't say it's something that we do all the time, but in the time that I've been here, in the 15 years I've been here, we've done it many times. Um, and what initiates that is an individual in our church that is sick, and they ask for the elders to gather and anoint them with oil and to pray for them. And we, we practice this as a church. Now, we don't believe that, that we have authority as elders to command God to heal anybody. Um, and when we pray for someone, anoint them with oil, um, we've prayed for individuals and there have been just what I would consider to be miraculous results uh, of testimony that they come back and say, hey, God has healed me. And we give God praise and glory for that. But it's not because anybody on our elder team has the gift of healing. Um, it's because God chose to heal that individual. And so one of the things we do when we pray with individuals that ask the elders of the church to pray over them, to anoint them with oil, is we pray and we say to God, God, we know you are able to heal. Um, God still heals today. Um, regardless of where you stand on spiritual gifts and sign gifts, uh, although you may land on the, the category of being someone who believes that no one has the gift of healing today, God still has that gift, right? He still heals. He still has the authority and power to do that, and I believe he does that. He heals miraculously today. He continues to do that and show himself to be strong. But when we pray and anoint someone with oil uh, in the name of the Lord, we ask of the Lord. We petition the Lord. We plead with the Lord. Lord, would you please heal this individual? You are able to. You can touch their body. You can heal them of this. But we're asking you to do it in accordance with your will and not ours. If it is not your will for that to happen, God, we trust you with it. We know that you know better than we do, but we're asking and pleading with you that you would touch our brother or sister and heal them today because you're able to do that. And God has done that. Um, he still works that way. But this is a matter of obedience. Can I explain it all? I cannot, but I know God's word commands it, so we do it. And so we anoint people with oil. And, and so if you are someone who's like, man, I've had a, a sickness or whatever, and I, I want the elders to anoint me with oil, absolutely, we would be happy to do that for you. But here's the thing we ask when we, people come in, and James follows this pattern. This is the next pattern that you're going to see here. If, you're, if you've sinned, confess it. 
If you've sinned, confess it. So if you're sick, call for prayer. If you've sinned, confess it. Because James says this, is anyone suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. Is any among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And listen, guys, here's kind of a theology in a nutshell of prayer for you when it comes to prayer, sickness, disease, and all the things that happen in our lives. Not all sickness and disease is as a result of your direct sin. Okay? Sometimes you're going to get sick, you might have disease, you might have things that happen in your life as trials or, or hardship when it comes to your physical bodies that ultimately are a result of sin because we live in a fallen world, right? So before that, there was no sickness. But when it comes to sickness, not every sickness is directly related to the disciplining hand of God because you're sinning in an unrepentant way. But some sickness is. And Paul talks about that. He says, because of disobedience, this is why some are sick and some have fallen asleep. And so when we ask, when people ask for the elders to anoint them with oil and pray over them, we do it. But one of the first things we do is we read this text and we point out to the individual coming that not all sickness is a result of sin, but some is. And if you're asking us to pray for your healing and God has allowed you to endure what you're enduring for correction because of sin that's in your life, you must first confess that sin. And, and so we ask people, is there any sin in your life that you know you are participating in that you have not confessed to the Lord and repented of? Because if there is, that's going to hinder any kind of healing that God would do in your life. And so when we tell people that, they're like, oh, initially people are like, I'm going to call for the church to pray for me and the elders. And when you hear that, everybody's kind of like, oh, well, maybe I won't, right? Because we're not necessarily at that step yet. Well, that's what the prescription is here in, in, in James. And with it comes the reality. God could choose to heal or he could choose not to. But he makes the point, the powerful, effective prayer of a righteous individual avails much. It's profitable. And so I will tell you this, even individuals that we've anointed with oil and prayed for, even if physical healing does not come, there is a sense of real spiritual healing that takes place in their trust, confidence, and encouragement in the Lord because they see how God sustains them and how God provides for them. It's a great thing. So we do this. Um, but again, the prescription here is if you're sick, call for prayer. If you've sinned, confess those sins. Um, it is good to ask for prayer. It is good to ask for prayer with a clear mindset that's following repentance. And so I think sometimes we, we jump past the repentance part and go to the immediate prayer part. Sometimes our prayers can be hindered because of the sin that's present in our lives. And, and so we have to have a proper understanding of that. So again, not all sickness is a result of sin, but our direct sin that we're committing, that God's correcting us, but some is. And so we have to be keeping short accounts, right, with the Lord. And this is what James says here. Confess your faults, your sins to one another and make sure that you do that. There's great freedom in that. If you get a chance to read Matthew chapter 18, that's the passage that speaks about church discipline. And Matthew begins by saying, if your brother sins against you, go to your brother and confront him over that. You call your brother to repentance. And if he hears you, you've won your brother. The goal of any church discipline is restoration. It's not to destroy. It's not to cast out. The goal is to restore a brother to fellowship and rightness with God. But what's interesting is that when confession and repentance takes place, there's, there's, you've won your brother, he says. There's joy in that. And so confession of sin is important, and it's important that we do that. He goes on in verse 17, if you're in distress, he says, pray. 
Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Uh, uh, Elijah was a prophet of God. And there were times in Elijah's life as a prophet of God that he would struggle. He would struggle because of the things that were happening in his life. But this was a prophet of prayer. And specifically, he speaks about a drought that took place for three and a half years. And James, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, gives credit to the drought and then the ending of the drought to the prayers of Elijah. Now, is God in control of that? Of course he is. Was it all part of the sovereign hand of God and plan of God? Of course it was. But God used prayer from Elijah to see this take place. And and then he honored that prayer that Elijah gave. And then the rain was produced again. Um, guys, prayer is powerful and effective. People always ask the question of how does prayer work and how does it, how we balance what prayer does versus what God does. And if I don't pray, is it going to have, listen, I don't have all the answers. What I can tell you is that we're told again and again and again to pray, to pray, to pray, to pray, and to trust God in that prayer, that God will respond and God will act as only God can. And so it's amazing to me, James is using his final words here to believers who are in distress, who are facing temptation, who are suffering, who are in distress and anguish. And he's using his final moments here to highlight the necessity of prayer to the Lord. I mean, it's a great challenge. Um, And, you know, people, it's funny because whenever I ask anybody, how's your prayer life? You know what everybody says when you ask, if you ask anybody how your prayer life is, you know what almost every believer says when you ask that question? Um, it's pretty good, but it's not where it should be. That's what everybody says. There's like an acknowledgement, no matter who you are, that I could always pray more. I could always go to God more. And I look at that and think like, well, why is that the case, right? Everybody knows that prayer, and, and a lot of times when we say that, we're covering for ourselves. Because someone who hasn't prayed in a month is still gonna say, it's pretty good, but not where it should be. I need to pray more. And someone who prays every day is still gonna probably say that. It's not as good as it should be. I need to pray more because we can always, Paul said, pray unceasingly. But guys, again, if we value it and we say it's important, we should be doing it. If you're in distress, pray. If you're in error, be corrected. This is hard for us as men. Uh, In verse 18, he says this. He says, um, he prayed again. Heaven gave, I'm sorry, it should have been verse 19 here. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. There's two things in this final section. One, if you're in error, be corrected. Paul's, di- or, I'm sorry, James is directly talking to the believer here and he says, if anyone among you wanders, you're wandering away. And he talks about the one who brings him back. There's this idea here that if you and I wander from the truth or you and I are going astray, we need to be willing to receive correction. We need to be willing to receive correction. And sometimes love uncovers. Love covers sin sometimes, but sometimes love demands an uncovering of sin out of care. And so we need to be able to receive correction. And sometimes we can have a hard time with this as men because we can be prideful. We can put up walls. We don't want to admit when we're wrong. And we refuse to be corrected. We refuse to be corrected. Have you ever been caught knowing you did something wrong, but you still try to justify it? Probably all of us have done that. 
whether as a kid and our parents caught us and we were like, ah, here's why. Or if it's a situation at work where you made a mistake but you're trying to justify why the mistake was made or you're in an argument with someone and you've been proven that your logic is flawed but you still want to try to make yourself look good and so you try to manipulate the conversation back to, well, this is what I really meant by it. Or you've just been flat out caught and you make a joke about it like, haha, I was kidding but you caught me because you don't want to, I don't want to look bad. You know what James is saying here? If anybody's wondering, and he says, if any of you wonder, recognize the, the importance and how good it is to be brought back. And so if you are an heir, be corrected. And then if you see heir, correct it. If you see heir, correct it. Just as he says, my brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know, the wanderer, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So there's not only a desire we should have on our part to be corrected, receive correction, and to be able to be corrected when we're in error, but there should also be a desire on our part as believers who care for one another that if we see error in our brother's life, that we'd be willing to correct it in love. And I don't mean there's an arrogance here. Jesus talked about this, right? Don't worry about the speck in your brother's eye when you have a beam in your own eye. And it's quite an illustration that Jesus gives, right? People walking around with a big beam hanging out of their eye, and, and you approach them. You can't even get close enough to see the speck because of how blatant what's in your eye is. And you're like, hey, you got a speck in your eye. And they're looking at you with the beam, right, flowing out of your eye. But there is a desire on the part of the Lord for the church to be able to sharpen one another's iron sharpens iron. And when we see air, to correct it. And he says, let him know the one who brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It seems that James makes a little bit of transition here talking about saving his soul from death. No individual can save someone's soul. right? No individual. Christ saves us. No, Not one of us has the ability to do that. But you see the priority that's being placed on the reality of necessity of being able to see air and bring correction in that air. Imagine if you were driving, and I've done this before, and you've probably done it before, where you're driving and you pull up alongside of a car and you notice, you know, there's someone in the front seat and you notice one of the back tires is flat. Or you notice a brake light is out. And I've had the people do this to me as well. Roll down your window and you'll look over and you're trying to get the person's attention because you want them to roll down their window so you can let them know, hey, your, your back tire's flat or your brake light is out. Because there's this like in, inherent thing within us with our conscience that when we see someone who potentially could be facing harm and we have the ability to warn them about it, we do that, right? And, and so I've done that before. You've probably done that before. You probably had someone tell you that before. Hey, just want to let you know your back light, brake light's out. And if you already know, you're like, I got it, okay? Like you already know, and sometimes it can be annoying when people do it. But if you didn't know, and it was really important, and it was going to cause distress or something, you'd be very thankful for that, right? You'd be very thankful. Same way should be true within the body of Christ. If I care for you as brothers and you care for me as a brother and you see something happening in my life that you know is getting me to go down a path of destruction, I have a responsibility and you have a responsibility and love to talk about that with that brother. We have that responsibility. And that's what James says here. And, And it's important that we get this. And you can imagine as times grow hard, and persecution arises, and distress arises, and trials arise, the temptations will be far greater to be able to stray from following after the Lord. And that's the situation these believers were in, and this is the instruction that James gives to them. So practical, isn't it? It's just so practical. 
And so as concluding thoughts, if you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, praise. If you're sick, call for prayer. If you've sinned, confess it. If you're in distress, pray. If you're in error, be corrected. And if you see error, correct it in love, in compassion, in humility. But if you see it, correct it. Some great just challenges again from James that I think are so practical. So as we wrap up tonight, I want to give you some time at your tables with some questions that have to do with today, but also the overarching kind of instruction from the book of James. Number one, why is prayer oftentimes our last resort rather than our first priority in our lives? I I don't think that I am misrepresenting what is typically the case for most people is that you've heard the statement, well, when there's nothing left to do, pray. Like that's what everybody says. And, and that's just, that's bad theology, right? That's just bad uh, implementation of what God's word says. But why is that oftentimes the case, that we don't first go to prayer, sometimes it's the last thing that we do? Um, number two, why is praise oftentimes not on our lips to the Lord? When was the last time in the presence of others that you gave God praise outside of the walls of the church? I don't know when that was for you. When was the last time that you gave praise and glory to the Lord for what he has done in your life in the presence of others and that praise was on your lips before the Lord and before others, giving him glory that is due to his name. Would you say we have more complaints or praises that mark our lives? What would be true of your life? Number three, why is confession of sin so hard? But what do you see is the benefit of it? Why is it hard? Why is it beneficial? Number four, spend some time in prayer with each other, share some requests for supplication, and share praises for thanksgiving. And so um, that's a lot, guys, I know. Um, But I want to give you some time at your tables. Try to pick maybe two of these to work through because you're not going to get through all four. Pick one or two of them to focus on, and I'll give you some time to do that now. All right. Um, Hopefully tonight's been an encouragement, guys, and a challenge. Um, You know, isn't it good when we can care for each other, pray for one another, uh, bear burdens together, confess sins together. Uh, That's God's intention for us as brothers in the Lord. And um, I hope that that will not cease from happening simply because you're not here on a Thursday night, um, that it will not cease from happening. I gave you those dates at the beginning of our time. I'll give them to you one more time. Our study for the spring starts up on March 7th. We'll go through May 16th, 10 weeks, March 7th through May 16th. I do not need more materials to review for the spring study. I appreciate all of you that have given me materials. Uh, I will be reviewing those and making a decision. Um, I understand this is what I love about our group of men that are here. Every person that has given me material, material to look at is extremely passionate about those materials. And I love that. Um, and everybody hands it to me and says this, we need to do this for the men's study. It's perfect. And we need to do it this next time. And I, I love that because the word of God is profitable, and, and it is essential for us. And so praise the Lord. What that tells me is God has challenged you, and you've benefited from these studies that you've thrown my way, and I think that's fantastic, and I praise the Lord along with you. Um, my task, and just so you know my process, is I want to pray to the Lord and ask the Lord, okay, Lord, lay on my heart, lay on my mind, what is it that would be best for our men? Uh, coming up in the spring. Lead me, direct me. And a lot of times God does that through what I'm reading and studying as well as what's been given to me, um, things that I'm listening to as well. So thank you. I genuinely mean that to to those of you that have given me those studies. Uh, If I don't choose the study you've given to me, it doesn't mean we won't do it. Um, There are reasons that we're not going to because God has impressed on my heart something else. But um, I appreciate it. I do. But we can't do everybody's studies. (laughs) So unfortunately, there will be a lot of you that will be sitting there like, well, you never did my study study, 
I, I get it. I get it. But uh, we're working on that, and so we'll give you an update about that after we hit the new year. Uh, you'll have plenty of time to know what the content's going to be. But again, it's going to start up on March 7th through May 16th. Guys, I want to encourage you something else. I don't know how many of you know this. We've brought this up, this up a number of times. In our men's ministry, um, all that we do is not on Thursday nights, okay? So you know, if you don't know this, we have men's mentoring available that if you want a man one-on-one to mentor you, that's happening in our church. And anybody, any man that comes to me and says, hey, I, I'd love to meet with a guy one-on-one for mentoring um, and for uh, just encouragement, and I need someone to meet with one-on-one consistently, we have a whole host of men that have said, hey, I'm willing to be that guy for someone. And so men's mentoring is available, and that happens all year round. And so if you're here and you're like, man, I can't, why are we going to wait till March to start to study up? We do the studies in conjunction with the women's studies because that way we want, if you're, you know, coming, your wife's coming to study, we want you to be able to, we want to have, as far as the facility itself in use around similar times, that helps with all that we're doing as far as the scheduling on the schedule, planning. This facility is in use all the time, all year round. And so don't think, well, men's ministry is over until March. It's not. Men's mentoring is available if you want it. In addition to that, if you want a men's discipleship group, we have connect groups, which meet in homes, and those are those connect groups for connection and being able to encourage one another. But we have specifically men's only discipleship groups, which is sometimes two to four or five men that are meeting in discipleship groups, and they meet on a weekly or biweekly basis, and it's for accountability, prayer, scripture, encouragement, discipleship. It's a discipleship group, and the, the hope and goal of the discipleship group is people who are discipling others in the group so that then when that group finishes, they can then go and disciple other men. It's a reproducing of reproducers is what that's called. But if you are a man who wants to be in a discipleship group, a small group of men, you know, we have those that are, we have many of those happening. Pastor Steve Bogan, our discipleship pastor, has put those together, done an excellent job in training discipleship leaders for that. But if you're a man who wants to be in a small discipleship group, that is available to you as well. And so we've talked about those things before. We've announced that. I know Steve has announced that and talked about it. But just to remind you, if you want that, it is available to you um, because we do want to value your growth in the Lord and we make those things available to you. Let me pray for you guys before you're dismissed tonight. Thank you again for your commitment to being here on Thursday nights. It's been a blessing uh, to be with you. But let me pray. Father, again, we thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for your character, Lord. Uh, As we've talked about even tonight, you are so good and gracious, kind, loving, forgiving, slow to anger. We thank you for that. We thank you that when we wake up tomorrow, the promise is that your mercies are new every morning. Your faithfulness is great. We thank you that you are not like our adversary. Uh, You are not evil. You are not deceptive in what you do. You do not tempt us to do evil. You're not a liar. Uh, Lord, you are not someone who desires destruction and to see people destroyed. Your desire, Lord, is that all would come to repentance and that they might know you. And so we thank you for your character and who you are. Thank you that you've loved us enough to send your son, our Savior Jesus, and thank you for the life that we have through him. I pray, Father, that we would take this great practical instruction from James. We would put it into practice in our lives. And as men, uh, we would be doers of your word and that we would be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.